We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host, Garland Nixon. Thank you, Wilmer. World Health Organization says 26 million people in Turkey and Syria need humanitarian assistance after earthquakes. More than 41,000 buildings in the 10 provinces in southern Turkey that were worst hit by the recent devastating earthquakes have been destroyed or rendered completely uninhabitable. For insight into this, let's turn to our next guest. He's the host of The Lest is Dead, James Carey. As always, James, welcome back. Always good to be here. The United Nations World Food Program announced today that it had delivered food to 300,000 people in earthquake-ravaged Turkey and Syria and is planning to help a total of 900,000 victims. James Carey, your thoughts. Well, um, I would say that, you know, I don't know how effective the U.N. is going to be, but I will say that the actual initial rescue efforts seem to have been incredibly effective. I mean, here we are under 10 days, and the biggest worry is now food aid is no longer digging people out of rubble or things like that. Coming from a country where it takes, you know, two decades to not rehouse people from Hurricane Katrina, I'm pretty impressed. Um, but it clearly, like, this is going to be a disaster for a while because, you know, both Syria and Turkey have been ravaged by the Syrian war for a decade now. Uh, Turkish economies have been in a tailspin. They're going to rely heavily on aid for this, but... Again, I think the fast nature of the response and how many, um, you know, most of Turkey's electricity is already restored. Uh, they have thousands, tens of thousands of electricians out there working on it. Um, the Russians have already chosen to, you know, let, leave the search and rescue operators because they've said they've, you know, essentially served their purpose there. Um, I think it's, you know, regardless of how much aid they're going to have to take, we talked about last week a little bit, you know, well, Erdogan kind of see a benefit from this. I would say this response has been very impressive. And although they're going to rely on the UN for a long time, they have been anyway, as far as the refugee camps and things like that are concerned. So that's not too surprising, but the fact that they got the initial cleanup done, the shock over with so quickly is pretty impressive to me. And I think it will be to KP voters too. Yeah. And um, the other thing I think, what are your thoughts on a couple of things regarding this? Um, How, you know, the, the, a lot of countries, China, Russia, Iran, a lot of this, you know, the countries that the U.S. has demonized have gone out of their way to respond. And basically, um, the international aid organizations had to basically twist Tony Blinken's arm in order to get, you know, some kind of a, a faux relief under some uh, a, a sanction relief, which most people are looking at t- saying that that isn't even enough. It's shown, you know, some hypocrisy there of, you know, you have your thoughts and prayer, our thoughts and prayer from the U.S. State Department, but you're going to keep our sanctions and make your lives miserable. Yeah, I I thought about this earlier. You know, I thought the Turks probably responded so quickly because unlike the United States or a lot of Western countries, there's a sort of whether, you know, how true it is or what, there's a shared national identity. There's a shared kind of culture that's, you know, clashing a bit here and there. But um, I think there's also that kind of thing among all of these countries who came to Turkey's aid, right? Like you said, what do they all have in common? They're all demonized by the U.S., you know? And I think that's becoming a sort of unifying trait around the world since we've demonized nearly everyone. Um, I think that that's almost becoming an international identity, right? That these countries are learning to work cohesively together because they understand that the U.S. isn't coming and the U.S. has no interest in helping somebody that they don't think it's going to be a benefit to help. 
even in, internally, we, we don't have that instinct, right? And not only is there collective action going on inside these countries to fix things and massive state mobilizations, which we don't do for anything, um, there's, you know, international mobilizations outside of these sort of NGO international bodies, which is pretty impressive. You know, I think that you're seeing an organization, again, is sort of unofficial non-aligned movement sort of carrying out these, you know, big joint efforts. Um, the Syrian border in Turkey opened up a bit more today, even in rural held areas, which is pretty impressive, you know, in the face of a crisis. Uh, I think you're just seeing a sort of unified front of we're probably just we're tired of being abused by the U.S., you know, and I think that's really bringing a lot of different countries together that might not have been before. But that's being done in light of or I should say uh, in spite of the, the United States unwillingness to seriously uh, relieve sanctions on Syria, as the United States, I think, has said that the that the sanctions have been relieved for 160 days or 140 days, but the the actual ramifications of that are aid agencies and international financial institutions still are very, very reluctant to engage in business with Syria because even though the United States says the sanctions are released, are relieved, they still understand that's what you say, but that's not what you do. And so there has been this, what seems to be a great imbalance between the ability to respond in Turkey versus the ability to effectively respond in Syria. Yeah, and I think that's probably why it's, you know, sticking to the craw of the United States that the, you know, Turks and Syrians are sort of working a bit closer together right now than they would be during this war. But I mean, the U.S. is a country that will steal wheat out of Syria, you know, in the middle of winter. We don't care, you know. Um, and yeah, you're right. I think the, the sanctions are always touchy because what if you accidentally do business with the wrong guy who is still sanctioned, you know? Um, but this is the U.S.'s thing. I mean, you kind of see – I don't necessarily see the U.S. as failing, but I see, like, the tools of empire are just austerity everywhere, and that doesn't necessarily work for everybody because people don't like being left out in the cold. And I think that um, Syria is a good example. You know, I think the, the international community outside of the U.S. really did rally around this single cause and said that's enough after, say, Iraq and Afghanistan. Um there may not be aid agencies going in there, but that's further punishment by the U.S. You know, this is always going to continue to happen. This has obviously been their goal for quite some time now. And add this, you know, there there are two elements here. Certainly there's the terrible tragedy, tragedy of the people who have been um, killed and injured in Syria. Add to that that five million people, my understanding is upwards of five million people have been left either homeless or their homes are damaged, you know, to a point where they're not sure whether they should stay. And some people are still staying in places that may be very dangerous. It's going to need to be rebuilt. And these sanctions were specifically to stop rebuilding in Syria after a devastating war that the United States caused and created and bombed. So now that's going to bring a long term question about does the United States now say we don't want you to rebuild from uh, 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 war? We don't want you to rebuild from the earthquake and we don't want you to have money because we're going to keep your oil and your wheat fields and everything else. It just exposes this amoral um, grab for power, for imperial power, James. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, that's like I said, we've seen him steal wheat. We've seen him steal gas. 
you know, there's been many a winter in Syria where there's no heat, thanks to the United States. And that's sort of the tool of the empire. Now you're looking at something similar to, uh, say, 90s Iraq, right? You know, you're not participating in the system the way we want you to. Venezuela still, I mean, Venezuela is still, there may be some sanctions lifted because we desperately needed oil, but it is still sanctioned to the teeth because you are not participating properly in the global economic system. And that's the thing is, like I said, um, you know, that obviously the school of empire is this sort of neoliberal capital, but the bad side about that is it privatizes everything too and makes horrible austerity in government. Uh, and Syria is just a prime example of the worst case scenario of what they can do to you. You know, I think that's always been the thing. And again, it's, you can't let somebody win a war that you chose to engage in, whether you even called it a war or not. You know, we didn't lose Afghanistan. We chose to leave. Uh, it was a negotiated withdrawal done by Trump and carried out by Biden, right? They try and pretend it's bi- bipartisan. Iraq, the parliament tells us to leave. We refuse to, uh, you know, Syria, we've just been occupying the north since the war started. And no matter how many countries tell us it's illegal, we don't seem to be doing anything, you know, and uh, it doesn't seem to matter because it, we're just going to continue bullying the people we can because we can't even control our own allies at this point. Ornical Tribune has a piece, Palestine is my cause. It's by Ramzi Baroud. And Arabs reaffirm support for Palestinians' rejection of the occupation. The latest Arab Opinion Index is yet more proof that Arab societies are diverse in every possible way, from their assessment of their economic situation and living conditions to their take on immigration, state institutions, and democracy. With one single exception, Palestine. 76% of all respondents to the poll, which is carried out annually by the Arab Center for Research and Policy Studies in Doha said that Palestine is a cause for all Arabs, not Palestinians alone. Your thoughts, James? I'm not surprised, right? I mean, everyone in an Arab country essentially has a living memory of sometime Israel has either screwed with their internal politics or legitimately done some illegal act of war on them, right? So, uh, and look at even Saudi Arabia, where they made these sort of normalization pacts with Kushner and everything like that. You know, you still can't land an Israeli plane in Saudi Arabia. You can't fly over. You can't show an Israeli TV show in in Saudi Arabia. There's, you know, 70 years of resentment built up here. And to think that anything like all oh, the Abraham Accords or, you know, sort of kind of neutering Iraq or whatever you you have you um, to think that that was, you know, they see it as a Zionist ally coming in to do that. That doesn't really help. But to think that it was ever going to wane like that, like I said, after 70 years of Israel interfering in, you know, Arab business, uh, destroying Arab nationalism, destroying Arab left-wing movements, um, propping up groups that they now hate. You know, all these things kind of play a factor and people remember these things. I mean, the Lebanese, even if they're not, you know, Southern Shia, they remember the civil war. Um, Syria, Syrians obviously remember, you know, they see every week or so an Israeli plane fly into their airspace with no challenge to it. In fact, let me, uh, Iraq. Let, let me jump in real quick. And, and to your point about memory and one of the things that a lot of people in the West really don't appreciate about people in that region of the world is their historic arc for memory. They don't forget anything. 
They don't generation before generation, but they tell that history. And when they say when they say to you, this isn't over there in, in the West, we have a tendency to think, well, that's just between me and James Carey. No, that's my son and your son. That's my grandson and your grandson. That's my great, great, great. Until the deal gets settled, it ain't settled and they don't forget. Oh, yeah, I was going to say absolutely. I think the only place we have a cultural memory like that in the United States is probably like the, you know, the African-American community, which uh, remembers actual like segregationist laws in lifetimes, you know. But as far as Americans go, we don't even know why. Say Iran is mad at us or anything like that. <laughs> right, right, right. Let me add uh, this story. It's important. Middle East Eye, 100,000 Israelis protest against controversial judicial overhaul. If you look at it, they are basically making sure that this is a fascist country. Let me add this. You cannot have a country that's fascist against Palestinians, that's fascist against Syrians, that ain't fascist against its own people. It's the chickens coming home to roost. They thought that they could have a government that would treat Palestinians like that, but it wouldn't rip their rights apart. Your thoughts? No, oh, yeah. Why do you think you? Why do they think they've been training, you know, our cops over there? You know, <laughs> what were they doing? You know, yeah. I think that's it, definitely, and. The Israeli project has gotten more desperate because it hasn't worked. You know, they haven't managed to outpopulate the Palestinians. They haven't managed to get them all to move to Jordan or whatever. And you're seeing a, a sort of escalation now, like these new gun laws, the new uh, court regulations and things like that. They're trying to make it so settlers can own guns. At this point, Israel is so desperate that they're just trying to provoke a sort of external reaction from the Palestinians because they clearly can't handle what's going on inside. And I think that that's a condition of Netanyahu being a sort of Erdogan-type character who's, yeah, he's elected, but that's only because there's nobody really fit to run against him if you look at how, you know, mishmashed the last coalition was. James Carey, as always, thank you so much for your time. Greatly, greatly appreciate that analysis, and we look forward to having you back. All right. Thank you. Folks, you are listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Wilmer Leon, joined here by my co-host Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. 